0: Listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit SouthPoint.org. You've probably heard it said, but C.S. Lewis said that Jesus is either a liar. He is a lunatic or he is Lord. Those are the only options for a guy who came and said, I am the Messiah. I am fully God and fully man. And so we have to wrestle with that. But I want us to begin with, and most of us are like, oh, well, easily, yeah, we say that he's Lord. But, but I want us to, to walk through that this morning. Maybe even this morning, some of you all are like, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling with that truth. We're going to look and see what Christ says about himself, but also how we are to live in light of that. I'm going to it to you, just I'll show all my cards. I think that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who took away the sins of the world and that he is Lord. That's the premise that we're working off of this morning. But he also says this in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, and then we'll get into Luke chapter 6. But Jesus says, to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. So here's the question that I want us to wrestle with this morning, if we say, yes, Jesus is Lord. I want us to ask this question, though, wherever you are on that, on that journey of faith. If you're like, man, I've got no struggles, no worries, no doubts at all. If you're like, man, I'm, I'm in the throes of doubt. I'm wrestling with my faith. I want us to answer this question. What are you pursuing most right now? That's the question. And, and I want us to take just a moment... And in the stillness of this moment, I want us to be honest before God. We've already had a time of confession, but I want us to even further just ask the Spirit to reveal that to us, to reveal that to you. And If you're pursuing Jesus most right now, then praise God. If it's something else, maybe it's just like, yeah, I'm I'm pursuing Jesus, and that's what you're verbalizing. I want you to be honest with God the Father and ask the Spirit to reveal that in your life. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and tell us what that is in just a minute, But I want us to pray and to seek the Spirit's wisdom and to make sure there's no hidden corner of our heart where we're actually pursuing something else, even though we say that Jesus is Lord. So let's ask the Spirit to open our eyes to that, to that sinfulness this morning and open our eyes to his word. So I'm going to give us just a moment. Let's, Let's pray and ask him to reveal the nature of our hearts. amen. Church, for me, it, it, was, it was control. I want to be in control of every part of my life. And so, even as we walk through this passage, as I walk through this passage with you this morning, and I didn't, I, I wasn't planning on, hey, let me tell you what I, I'm constantly struggling with. That's what I'm struggling with right now in a variety of areas of my life. I want to be in control. And so I'm praying even now, and as I preach, I'm going to be praying that the, the truth of this word would allow me to see that Jesus is Lord and that he is in control of all things. So we're going to look at Luke chapter six and Caleb just did a great job of reading that passage. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we see here beginning in, in verse number 12, we, we just read and we see, he talks about in those days, Jesus went up to pray and he was seeking those whom he was going to call as his disciples, as his apostles, his sent ones. And we see this motley crew of folks. These aren't the most educated people. These aren't the best looking people. These aren't um, the richest people. This isn't who I would pick to be my disciples. If these folks were like, yeah, yeah, Michael Powell is our rabbi. We love to follow him. I'd be like, shh, keep it down. Don't, don't tell anybody. Let me find somebody else. But we see here this, this crazy group. But their unity is not in their affinity. It's not because they were like each other. Their unity is in their community. And that was because they were pursuing Jesus Christ. And they were all different. And the same is true for the church today. So from the very beginning, Jesus doesn't call us because of what we offer. He says, hey, you don't offer very much, but I'm going to call you and use you anyway. We see the very last one. And Judas, the son of James, there's two Judases. I mean, that would kind of stink, right? If you're not Judas Iscariot and you're like, oh yeah, Judas, Jesus. It's not me, I swear. But the second one, Judas, the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor, this word Iscariot, is I thought this was just interesting, but that word Iscariot is scary. It's a Semitic word for dagger. And they would actually use the word Iscariot uh, to talk about assassins. And we know that eventually Judas Iscariot literally takes that dagger and stabs Jesus in the back. So even here in this passage as we talk about Jesus calling his disciples and Jesus spent all night praying about it, we see the cross looming in the distance, the reason that Jesus was sent. So then we get down to verse number 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd. And he begins teaching. And if you're familiar with the scriptures at all, you're like, man, these sound really familiar. This sounds a lot like Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. And so it could be the same exact sermon. Jesus may have had this sermon. He may have preached this a multitude of places. We know that Jesus preached a lot. He preached for hours and hours. So this is just a summary. It says here that he went to a flat place. So some... Uh, commentators call this the Sermon on the Plain versus the Sermon on the Mount. Some are like it's the exact same thing. It it doesn't really matter. These are the words of Jesus, and so we're relying on that as told to us by Luke. So we know that these things are true. So we have here. The, then we get into the meat of Jesus' sermon. The first thing I want us to see in these first seven verses is this: that following Jesus extends blessing in the midst of suffering. Following Jesus extends blessing in the midst. Of of suffering, So verse number 20, we, we see that he begins here. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Now, notice here he's talking to his disciples. He's not speaking to the crowds yet. He begins speaking to the crowds later in verse number 27, but I say to you who hear. But right here, he's speaking specifically to his disciples. And so that's important for us to know. Luke puts that in there for us on purpose. But he has this contrast, this juxtaposition between these two types of people. He says, for some of you, you are blessed. Or if you want to sound a little smarter, you say blessed, Right? Then you have this other type of people who he says, woe to you. Now, this blessedness, some folks are like, oh yeah, happy are you. But, but happy is a weak translation of that word blessed. This word blessed means you are finding in the deepest part of your heart and your soul satisfaction in Christ alone because you are living face to face in the presence of God. That's what it means to be blessed. So he says, for some of y'all, y'all are living face-to-face with the presence of God. This is what your life looks like, but you're experiencing God, so you're blessed. He says to the other side, he says, woe to you. And this is an Old Testament uh, command. commandment. That's what the prophets would do. And the prophets would come down and say, y'all are not living right. So woe to you. Here's the Lord's condemnation. And it was always terrible news. It was a crushing defeat. There was no getting out of it. And so Jesus says there are two types of people, two categories. And for us, we're going to be in one of those two categories. But here's what he says, first of all. And so we're just going to compare and contrast these real quickly as we walk through. He says the first category, and we can see there in verse number 20, he begins with, blessed are you who are poor. And then if you go down to verse number 24, he says, but woe to you who are rich. Now, by the world standards, we are By and large, all of us in this room, and I don't know how much money y'all make, if you want to know how much money I make, uh, just ask my wife, uh, so I don't, she'll have to figure it out and tell you, Uh, but I know for us, everybody in this room, we would be considered rich. Now, is there anything wrong necessarily with having money? No, but he says, woe to you, and here's why, because the, the point of this, you who are poor, blessed are you who are poor, because you understand your need you understand your desperation. And you understand physically, if you're rich, that you can provide for yourself. But if you're poor, you're like, I can't provide for myself physically, so I definitely can't provide for myself spiritually. And so what this richness does for us, We take the comforts of the world that we can afford. We take our wealth, our bank account, everything that life affords us and everything that we can afford, and it makes us blind. It makes us temporary, have temporary sights. We can't see eternal things because we're surrounded with those things that are temporary because of our riches right now. But those who are poor, he says, man, you understand there is something more to this life because you don't have anything here. So our riches are a detriment to us. We begin trusting in our riches rather than trusting in the riches of Christ. We begin trusting in the things that we can provide for ourselves rather than trusting in what Christ has provided for us. So that's the first contrast here. Secondly, he says in verse number 21, blessed are you who are hungry. In verse number 25, he says, woe to you who are full now. In other words, you you think you can satisfy yourself if you're full. And most of us, we haven't skipped very many meals And so for this person who is finding their satisfaction now, there's going to be a constant gnawing in their soul where they cannot find satisfaction. The third thing he says here, blessed are you who weep now. And if you look down at verse number 25, woe to you who laugh now. In other words, if if you're not experiencing any sort of sorrow, if everything is just a joke, everything is happy, you don't understand your need for a savior. He's saying you're just blinded to your surroundings. And hell for that type of person is going to be like gnashing of teeth. Then the last category he has here is, he says, uh, in verse number 22, blessed are you when people hate you. For what reason? At the end of verse number 22, he says, on account of the Son of Man. On account of the Son of Man. I heard somebody even last night, um, they, they were talking about how their, their life is, is bad like it's just it's just bad, but uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna survive, we're gonna get over this, we're going we're gonna end up thriving. But the reason their life was bad was because of sin, <laughs> and and they saw this as persecution. Here's what Jesus says: If you are hungry, if you're weeping, if people are speaking ill of you for the sake of Jesus, then you are blessed. He says the only to contrast that: Woe to you when all people speak well of you, when you're popular, when you're successful, when you believe false doctrine. Now notice who is speaking ill of these people. He says it a couple of times, verse 23, and then he says it again in verse 26. But look at verse 23 with me. He says, "'Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven.' for so their fathers did to the prophets. So he's sitting here saying, those who were part of the family, the family of God, those were the ones who were speaking evil of those who were putting their faith in God alone. Again, in verse 26, what do you and all people speak well of you? For so their fathers did of the false prophets. So he's not saying, hey, we've got these crazy bad guys over here who are doing mean things to you. He's saying, for those who say they're part of the religious community, there are gonna be others uh, who say that they're Christians, who are like, man, no, 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 just just live it up now. Enjoy your life now. Live your best life now. They're going to give people what they want to hear because they have itching ears. But Jesus says, no, we're looking for a better hope. I mean, notice here in verse number 23, we just saw it. He doesn't say, smile and be happy in that day. No, he says, rejoice in that day. Now notice Jesus here does not say, there's a way to experience Present pleasure, and a way to experience ultimate joy. He doesn't say you can live for the now and live for eternity. He says there's an option here, and we saw it back at the very beginning in verse number twenty. He said he lifted up his eyes on his side. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. We find joy living for the kingdom of God, having the perspective of Christ. I would encourage us this morning to examine your heart closely because many of us, myself included, because what does money afford you the opportunity to do? To control your situation around you. That's me. But for many of us, we have become spiritually anesthetized. In other words, we're spiritually numb to the things around us. We, we may show up here on Sunday mornings. And it's like, oh, yeah, things are a little different. There was a power line that was cut outside because of some landscaping. Everybody's like, hey, what's going to happen? I don't know. We'll figure it out next week, you know. Which, by the way, shout out to Jason Bankston and Meredith for worrying about him all night, Friday night. But uh, Bankston, David Henry set this up. We had folks here this morning. So make sure you say thank you to them. That's why we're able to meet here this morning. My idea was to go outside and just yell at y'all from the top of a hill. And so uh, we're able to meet in here uh, thanks to those guys. Yeah, and ladies who got here early. But for most of us, we become spiritually numb to the things around us. We show up here on Sunday mornings and it's just going through the motions like, okay, good, I'll think about God again next Sunday. Let me go pursue my kingdom. But here, these folks, following Jesus means extending blessing in the midst of suffering. Then we get down to verse number 27. I want us to see that living for Jesus presents love in the face of persecution. So now he's, he's talking about maybe some of y'all have experienced suffering from the believers who are around you, the church or the people of God around you. But here, the context of these next few verses is being persecuted from the outside world. Verse number 27, the first word right there is but. And that's important. That's important. Because he's going to, again, compare these and com- contrast these two ways of living. There, there's a normal, natural, cultural, societal standard way of living. He's saying, don't live like that. He's saying, live counterculturally." He's saying, there should be something different about your life. It's natural for you to love people who are like you. It's natural for you to love people who have the same affinities that you do, who make the same amount of money that you do, who like the same kind of music that you do, who are going in the same direction, whose kids go to the same school that you do, who are in the same socioeconomic class that you're in. He says, but we're going to love people a little differently in a way that when the outside world, when pagans look in, they should be left scratching their heads, saying there's something different about these folks. There's something different because they're actually giving life. They're not just taking life from those around them, living selfishly, but these are life-giving people. Here's what he says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Verse 28, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. In other words, loving people like you is worthless in the sight of God. Even the unbelievers do that. He says here to love your enemies. Verse 29, he says to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your, tu- your tunic either. Again, this is in the context of Persecution. What he's not saying is, if your husband is abusing you, hey, just keep taking the abuse and just be like Jesus. He's not saying that. That's not the context of this verse. The context of this verse is not someone walks up to you on the street and you know that they're going to take that money and go and buy drugs. He's not saying, oh, well, here's all the money that I have. He's not saying that. That's not the context of this verse. So we can't just take this verse out of context and say, oh, well, we have to because Jesus tells us to. Preacher man told us to. No, he's saying, when you're being persecuted, he says, don't fight against it. He says, relent. Look at verse number 30, very next verse. He says, give to everyone who begs from you. That word begs right there, keep, keep going. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. That word begs is actually the same word for demand. So he's not saying if someone is pleading with you, if you see a beggar on the street, what he's saying is if someone demands something from you, then give them more. Give them that also. Again, the context is persecution. He's not saying here's a theology of prosperity or here's a theology of poverty. Most churches, a lot of teachers, popular teachers go one way or the other. He's saying here is a theology of generosity. So we're not living in this life for us to be rich. We're also not saying, hey, if I'm more like Jesus, i just give all my stuff away. And look how how poor I am. He's saying, let's be generous with the things that we have. Notice in verse number 35, we see the generosity of Jesus. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. What that doesn't mean is... For some of us, it would be easy to say, oh, well, he says, if we do this, then we'll become sons of the Most High. What he's saying is your identity is going to prove whose you are. Because Jesus was crucified, was killed at the hands of an angry mob. He had everything stripped away from him. And what does Jesus do on the cross? Does he say, gummit! I wish I would have died with more stuff. These folks took it all away from me. No, he forgave them. Jesus forgave them. So in the same way, Jesus is saying here, we were enemies of God, the same enemies that crucified Christ, yet he adopted us in as family. And so now we live out of that new identity. So he's saying, you are sons of the most high God when you forgive, when you give generously, when you live with love, when you can be poor and rejoice in God, when you are hungry, you're gonna be filled later because you have the kingdom in front of you. It's a different perspective. It's a different way of living. That's what he's saying. He's saying, live out of your identity that you have in Christ. I would encourage us. And this is tough. This is really tough. But I would encourage you to make either a mental or an actual note. Maybe this afternoon or sometime this week. It may be easier when it hits you in the moment this week. But make a list of your enemies. And some of you are like, I don't, I don't want to kill that person. <laughs> and that's okay. That doesn't. You don't have to be like ready to to fight or to go to blows. But maybe it's a coworker. Maybe at times it's your spouse. Maybe at times it's one of your kids or a brother or a sister or a mom or a dad or your boss or your neighbor. I would encourage you to make a literal list of those people and pray for them, find a way to bless them, and like Christ did, to endure that persecution We are to be a life-giving people. And what if people, when they looked at your life and looked at those folks who are part of South Point, they're like, man, those are people who are exuding life, not just maintaining life. If we were exuding life, their speech, the way that they give, the way that they serve, that's not pointing to us. That's pointing to Jesus Christ. So we see that living for Jesus presents love in the face of persecution. The next set of verses, the third thing that I want us to see this morning, is that disciples of Jesus offer mercy instead of judgment. Now, right there at the very end of that passage in verse number 36, now when Luke wrote this, he didn't have verses, he didn't have headings in the middle of verses. He didn't have chapters. It was just this long flow of thoughts. And so as I'm reading through this, it's easy for us to pick up with judge not, and you will not be judged. But we have to understand the context of that is verse number 36, which is, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So the context of judge not is still mercy. Now, verse number 37, judge not and you will not be judged, condemned and you will not be condemned, forgiven you will be forgiven. Every pagan in America knows the first part of that verse. Everybody knows that. And everybody can quote that verse. I would imagine, you know, years ago, if you were to say, what's the most popular verse? People knew. Probably John 3:16. you know. Maybe Jesus wept. Maybe something like that. Something easy. But nowadays, it would probably be this. Judge not. They stop right there until someone breaks in their house and steals their TV. Then we want to judge them. <laughs> Unless you disagree with me on social media, then all of a sudden we want to judge you, Right? Unless there's anything in your past that is bad or negative, then we can judge you, all of you completely. But but we see that this is the, the nation, the world knows this verse, everybody knows this verse. But here's what we do see in this for us as spiritual beings who have been adopted into the family of God is that when we refuse to forgive, we expose ourselves to God's judgment rather than his mercy. So before we say, okay, what does it mean to do this? What does it mean to not judge? What does it mean to not condemn? What does it mean to judge in the right way? Before we do all these things, we have to understand this is primarily not about our relationship to each other, but about our relationship to God. And so that when we fail to extend mercy, we expose ourselves to God's judgment rather than his mercy. Look at how Luke puts this in verse number 38. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. This, this next section right here is talking about how they would weigh and measure grains and corn in the marketplace. Here's the imagery. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Because there's a way to stack heads of corn in a, in a bucket, right? You can either just kind of make them so they form a teepee, so there's a lot of air in that. You ever go on Chick-fil-A and you get an ice cream? And in the middle, there's like a gallon of air, and you eat the whole thing in like three bites. You're like, "Where did all the ice cream go?" (laughs) Um, That's because they teach you to make this circle in the middle. You know, so it looks amazing, but there's not really a ton of ice cream in there. The same is true with the bag of chips. You you get the bag of chips, and and it's enormous. And you're like, "Man, this is going to take me weeks to devour." But have you ever, as soon as you open the bag of chips, you know that air just comes out, (laughs) and it's not filled with chips, but it's filled with lies. And you're sad because you wanted to eat all of those, either spicy Dorito or I like the flaming hot Dorito. I love the cooler ranch, dipping them in Moe's cheese. It's just amazing. I love it. But it's nothing but lies. And so the same thing is true here. If, if what you're extending people is a little bit of goodness, but it's mostly an empty forgiveness, he's saying, don't be that way because it's going to be measured back to you in the same exact way. Verse 40, 41, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Do you not notice the log that is in your own eye? We're quick to see the imperfections in everybody else. That's where we say amen. I'll say it again. We're quick to see the imperfections in everybody else. But we're blind to our own problems. Anybody there with me? Yeah. Notice what it doesn't say, though. It doesn't say to ignore the problems with your brother. This is like when you get on an airplane, and they're like, hey, in case the plane's going down, what you need to do is make sure you have enough oxygen, you know, which is always interesting to me. Uh, I'm like, ah, how about you give us parachutes? Can parachutes come out of these things? (laughs) Um, but, But the oxygen, I've been in planes where that's happened before, but what do they tell you to do if you have kids or someone who's traveling with you who can't take care of themselves? They say, when the oxygen comes down, do they say, put the oxygen on that kid? No. You put the oxygen on yourself, then you can help somebody else. The same thing is true here. He doesn't say, take care of the plank in your own eye and hope that your brother does the same thing. He says, no, take the plank out of your own eye. Your problems are probably worse than somebody else's. Even if they're not, let's just gamble that they are. Take the plank out of your own eye so you can help your brother. The goal here is still better community. It's not individualism. Just take it out of your own eye and just keep going your way. So I would encourage you, To be useful to those around you, I would also say, are you too prideful that when somebody comes and says, hey, brother, there's a speck in your eye, you're like, no, no, not not in my eye. So this goes both ways. Y'all like that cartoon? We keep going. So disciples of Jesus, we offer mercy instead of judgment. That doesn't mean we always, that doesn't mean we never extend judgment. But our default is mercy. That's the umbrella for offering judgment. Then we get down to verse number 43. I want us to see this, that abiding in Jesus produces fruit in step with the heart. Abiding in Jesus. And we get that imagery, that picture from John chapter 15. But abiding in Jesus, a very similar analogy that Christ uses there. But abiding in Jesus produces fruit in step with the heart. Notice in verse number 43. Again, we look at this a little small word that introduces a section. We saw the word but a few minutes ago. We have here this word For. Now, this word for is building on everything that Jesus has said. And now he's saying, that's the fruit of your life. He's saying, now let's get down and look at the root of your life. So he's built this argument for the, a, 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 a lifestyle of kingdom perspective. And now he's saying, here's the transformation that should have taken place in your heart. Verse number 43. This word for, the, the difference... Listen, friends, the difference between being saved and unsaved is not what your mouth says you believe. The difference between being saved and unsaved is what your life shows that you believe. So to this point, we could probably do a lot of these things. And the danger with this passage if we can say that about a sermon by Jesus, the danger with this passage is we say, you know what? Let me see if I can externally modify my behavior. Let me see if I can just start giving things away, not because I'm motivated by grace, but let me just see if I can start skipping some meals so I can live hungry. That's not the point of this passage. The point of the passage is here. Four, this is the heart of what Jesus is teaching us about. He says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes plucked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The message is not, do better at being a Christian. The message is, understand that you have been justified by faith, that you have been given a new identity based on the finished work of Jesus, that now the blood of Christ covers you, that because of Christ's work, God the Father doesn't look at you and see nasty, stinking Michael Powell, fill in your name in the blank. He sees the finished work of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we've been given a new identity. We are seen as sons and daughters. We have the presence of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So that's how we are able to experience new life. John Calvin, the reformer, he said this in his institutes. He said, it is faith alone that saves, but a faith that saves does not remain alone. And so we don't just say, hey, I got faith, but there's no fruit. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you have faith, you are going, you have to produce fruit. And I imagine he's sitting there as he's teaching He's probably looking at at a fig tree. He mentions a fig tree. Now, a fig tree, you know when figs are in season because the leaves come out. And you can tell from looking at a fig tree, even though maybe you can't see the figs from a distance, you can tell when it's in season, when the figs are ready, by looking at the leaves from a distance. And I imagine Jesus is sitting here, and he says, look at this fig tree, because he does this other places, right? He says, look at this fig tree. It looks like it's ready for harvest. It looks like it should be producing fruit. But when you get up close, there is no fruit. He's saying, this tree is a hypocrite. But he says the same thing for us here. From a distance, we can look and say, oh yeah, we're producing good things, we're producing fruit. But has the heart changed? On close examination, are you producing fruit in step with the root that is justification in Christ alone? Paul Tripp uses this analogy uh, in his book, Instruments in uh, the Hands of the Redeemer, in the Redeemer's Hands. But he uses this analogy of, of a tree that is not producing fruit. And he says, you can't just take fruit and staple it onto the limbs of a tree. You can't just say, hey, this tree is not producing any fruit. Let me put some fruit on it. You can't just exchange bad fruit for good fruit without examining the roots of that tree. And friend, I would say, we don't just say, hey, let me just, let me just change some things about my life. I'm telling you this morning that if that's what you are doing, you must be uprooted and replanted in Jesus Christ. It's through his finished work and through his power that you produce fruit. I was thinking about this with this live wire out here. Uh, we were out here on Friday, and my kids were kind of running around, you know, in the dark and in the heat <laughs> uh, of this place. And, and, I, and uh, as, as they were running by, I think uh, Jeff or Jason, they were like, hey, Kingston, that wire right there is live. Don't grab that wire. It'll be a really bad day for you. And King's like, okay, I got you. He's my six-year-old. But, but I imagine, what if I'd walked up to that wire and I said, I grabbed the wire and I said, Oh, no, no, it's live. I can feel it. I can confirm that this wire is live. Yes, there are hundreds of volts running through this. You'd be like, Nah. <laughs> nah. You can tell the power if it's there or not. If I grabbed that wire, you would have known real quick if there was electricity flowing through my bones, right? The same is true with us. It may be difficult for us to see on the outside, especially here on a Sunday morning, but if you are involved in community, if you are living before the face of God as a blessed person, you are going to know whether or not you have the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through you. It's like, "Ah, yeah, I think it's there. Yeah, I feel a little tingle in my toes. No, you're going to know. The power of God is going to be overwhelming for you. We obey God not to earn his favor, but we are motivated by his grace. That power is from Jesus. It's because of Jesus. We don't add anything to him. We are motivated by his grace. And so the same way that I would say, you must be uprooted and replanted, I would say, come to Jesus this morning. Fall upon his mercy and his grace. Because abiding in Jesus produces fruit and stuff with the heart. This last section of verses here, these last four verses, I want us to see that the promise of Jesus is a faith that won't be shaken. So we've seen that following Jesus extends blessing in the midst of suffering. Living for Jesus presents love in the face of persecution. Disciples of Jesus offer mercy instead of judgment. Abiding in Jesus produces fruit that's in step with the heart. The promise of Jesus is a faith that will not be shaken. Verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Who's he talking to here? He's talking to church members. He's talking to pastors. He's talking to missionaries, to tithers, to folks who have gone on mission trips. He's talking to everybody who has made a decision of faith. He's talking to people who show up on Sundays. He's talking to people who put Christian as their religion on Facebook. He's talking to people who don't cuss too much. He's talking to people who don't drink too much. He's talking to people who say, oh, yeah, yeah, Lord, Lord. But the test is obedience. Again, he just talked about the test is obedience, the test is fruit. He's going to further develop that. The test is obedience of your life. The difficult part is like the roots, the foundation of a house. We can't see it. We can't see those things. The foundation of your life is whatever you are pursuing. We asked the question in the beginning. Whatever you are striving for most, whatever is most valuable to you, Whatever you are giving yourself to, that is the foundation of your life. And the foundation, if you ever built a house or seen a house being built, I'm, I'm in the process of buying a house here in Locust Grove this week. And what did I do first? I had a foundation guy come out and look at it. Before I had a roof guy, before I had a paint guy, before I uh, scheduled the, the floors you know, or the paint or anything else to be done, I want to make sure the foundation is solid. So I had a foundation guy come out there the very day that I put a contract on that house because pouring the foundation can take a long time. It takes a long time to dig it up and make sure it's just right, but it affects every other part of the house. It doesn't matter if the rest of the house is beautiful and we've got shaker-style cabinets and we've got quartz countertops and you know we've got a, a nice study or whatever, whatever. It doesn't matter. If the foundation is off, the rest of the house is going to be weak. So your foundation is whatever you're pursuing with your life. Now notice here, he says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Not everyone who says that he believes them, everyone who makes a decision, everyone who gives it a big thumbs up or affirms it, everyone who does the words of Jesus. I'll show you what he's like. Verse 48, he's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. Now in Israel, uh, there are what's called wadis, which are um, which are long, deep uh, valleys where during rainy season they fill up like riverbeds. But for most of the year, they're dry. And so what he's saying is, when that water comes in like a tsunami, when it begins raining, it begins storming. It's going to wash through there really quickly. Now, when they're building the house, there's no water coming through, but they have to be built on a rock. The second option, verse 49, but the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now, the two houses look identical until the storm hits. My fear for a lot of us is that our hope is not necessarily in Jesus, but it's in the sunny days that he provides for us. We're like, Jesus, please please don't bring the storms along. I want to build my house with the sunshine still out. I want to make sure that I have good kids and that I have a good wife and that I can drive something nice and that I keep a good job, and that I can be seen as successful and I never go hungry and that things are just going along well. Praise God. And I've got the mugs and I've got the blanket throws and I've, I've got all the, the pictures and everything's beautiful. But what happens when you lose your job? What happens when your marriage is on the rocks? What happens when there's a sin in your life that you just cannot shake? What happens when your kid is born and it's not a normal birth and you have issues to deal with? What happens when your kids aren't obeying perfectly, which would be everybody that has kids? What happens when you're not getting along with your coworkers? Is your faith in Christ or is it in what He does for you? When life goes awry, and here's the test for that. When life hits the fan, do you fall into the depths of despair? Because I know I do. Because when I struggle with control, if I'm not in control and I can't get back in control, what happens? I feel like I should be in control and I know that I'm not in control and this is what's happening on the inside of my soul. You know what that is? Anxiety. Despair. Depression. I just can't handle it, but I know that I should, but I, but I know that I should trust in God, but I just can't because he's the one who let me get here. But when we are surrendered to Christ, No matter the storm that hits, we're able to rest and surrender to his will. That's what Jesus is saying here. So which area of your life needs to be given over to him? And it may be be a huge area. You're like, man, I have never put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Today is the day of repentance, friend. Fall upon his grace. You're like, man, I've got this area over here. Confess that. Repent of it. Give that to him. Here's the promise. So we talk about it. Here's the promise of Jesus. It's a faith that won't be shaken. Here's the promise. is that when you struggle and fall, his death is sufficient. That when you feel like you have no strength, there is resurrection power to uphold you. Because he is your rock. He is your foundation. When you feel lost, the word is there to guide you. When you feel like you have nothing left, his mercy will satisfy you. Jesus Christ is the rock. He is our foundation from before any of us were born. And guess what? God knew exactly what was going to happen in your life. He knew exactly what the storm was going to look like. And he says, Jesus Christ is sufficient for whatever that storm is. So hold to that promise. We sang about it. My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and Righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Is that true in your heart? Is he the anchor of your soul? When everything else around you is raging, you have that anchor there that goes deep. If Jesus is telling the truth, and I think he is, the only sane option is to accept him as the Lord of your life and follow him every moment of each and every day. So, what does the Holy Spirit want to adjust in your life? I don't mean that as a rhetorical question. I think that's one that we should struggle with. What does the Holy Spirit want to adjust in your life? What does he want you to sacrifice? Because only those who are desperate, only those who realize their need will run to him as their provider. Only those who realize that their life is otherwise built on sand will run to him as the rock. Only those of us who understand that the things of this world are fleeting will go to him as our ultimate eternal joy. May that be us this morning. And may we be a people who are life-giving May there be life that is exuded in our homes, in our marriages, in our schools, in our places of work, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, with our friends. May we not be living by the cultural status quo, but may we be living under the lordship of Jesus Christ.